thank you, happy few, for, for coming. Um, this is uh, maybe a bit different than some of the other uh, presentations, as it's about a straight-up Old English medieval poem. Uh, but I hope that gives us a little bit of diversity, and uh, it's not totally different from uh, some of the other speculative fiction topics, as this poem has cannibals in it. So uh, I think there's, there's, there's some affinities there, so, so let's jump into it. Um, so what is Andreas, and, uh, and what am I going to be talking about? So to give you a, a, a quick synopsis of the poem Andreas, and what's in it, and, and, and what I'm going to be looking at, uh, a few words. Um, so uh, the poem Andreas, it comes from the Vercelli book, which is one of four manuscripts that we have that uh, encapsulates almost all of the Old English poetry that still exists. Um, of, within this book, there are six poems and a series of homilies, and this is one of those six poems. Uh, a few other ones that you may have heard from this same manuscript are Elena and Fates of the Apostles. These are uh, poems written by a poet whom we actually know his name, Kinnewulf, and I'll talk more about these uh, in a few minutes. Um, so the poem tells the story of the disciple Andrew and his mission to rescue the disciple Matthew from some, some uh, cannibals who've decided they're going to eat him. Uh, there, we do have a Latin prose uh, version of this story called the Acta Andreae et Matthiae. Um, and uh, so uh, I believe actually this, this Latin prose rendition predates uh, Andreas, and I'll talk a little bit more about, about what that might mean. And then the poem itself, uh, so to give you a, a, quick, a quick plot synopsis of, of, of the poem, since I'm not going to be talking too much about it uh, uh, in terms of its, its narrative content, uh, the general idea is Matthew decides it's a great idea to go and um, proselytize to this group of known cannibals, the Myrmidons. Uh, as you might expect, they decide it's a better idea to eat him, and so they imprison him and they decide they're going to eat him. Uh, God comes to Andrew and says, Andrew, please, I need you to go and rescue um, Matthew. So he goes, he finds a, finds a boat with a boatman, takes a sailing voyage over with his retinue of uh, of folks, they rescue uh, Matthew from prison, um, and uh, uh, as a consequence, Andrew is captured, and, and they decide they're going to eat him instead. Uh, he's, he manages to to escape with God's help and um, purge the town of the evildoers and bring them to Christ. So, in a in a nutshell, that's what the poem is about. It's a lot more fun than it sounds in that in that short synopsis, uh, but but there it is. So now with this poem, what I'm going to focus on is, uh, is uh, the questions of how this poem might have been composed and who might have composed it. Now, um, as I mentioned, uh, we do know of at least one Old, uh, old English poet whom, whose name we know, that, that being Kinnewulf. Uh, we know of him because he signed his name in four poems uh, using runes. So uh, at, least, at least we know this one person's name, this one poet's name, and we, we have uh, uh, you know, at least four poems that we know that this, this poet wrote. So one, one scholarly debate about Andreas is whether or not Andreas may or may not have been written by Kinnewulf, um, and, uh, and, um, or, or, or did it not? It, was it written earlier than Kinnewulf or later, or so on? Um, and there's a few reasons why people think that. So in the case of, of uh, the Old English poetry timeline, as it were, and I've just kind of laid out some of the some of the poems and their relative uh, dating here. Uh, for the most part, people, um, they want to uh, ascribe authorship by various criteria. And unfortunately, 
we don't know very much about uh, the folks who wrote these poems. Um, even in the case of Kinnewolf, we know his name, we don't know very much else. For the most part, what we know is intimately tied up, as Andy Orchard puts it, uh, is intimately tied up with the issue of style. So uh, scholars will look at these poems and um, compare them and contrast the style for, from various criteria and ascribe these two poems sound really similar, so maybe they're written by the same person. And people have made these kinds of arguments with Andreas and Kinnewolf in particular. They seem to share a lot of style. Maybe they're written by the same person. Um, as you might guess, other scholars make the opposite claim. Well, there are parts of Kinnewolf that sound very Beowulfian, so maybe it's not Kinnewolf, it's somebody else, and so on. Um, so there's not a lot of consensus about who exactly wrote, um, wrote Andreas and whether or not it was before or after Kinnewolf or contemporary with him. So one, one serious dilemma, though, when you're looking at these questions and you don't have much to go on other than the, the style of the poem is what if the style is not uniform in the poem? And we have a lot of such examples where we know that that's the case already uh, in the old English poetic corpus. Uh, poems such as, as uh, poem Genesis was one of the first to, to have been discovered to have a piece of it that was uh, translated actually from Old Saxon. Um, Guthlach is now split up into Guthlach A and B on stylistic grounds. Uh, the poem Daniel, The Dream of the Root as well recently, um, had an argument saying that it was actually a composite work of more than one author. So we know that this has occurred in the, in the Old English poetic corpus. So before we can really make any judgments about uh, the authorship or, or, or composition of a work, um, when uh, when that, uh, when that uh, argument is going to be based on style, we first need to, to demonstrate that the style of that poem is uniform. And that demonstration has not uh, really taken place with Andreas. So I set out to do it. Uh, so how did I go about, go about doing this? Um, as Franny said, I'm a computer programmer by trade. Uh, so I wanted to have some sort of quantitative approach to this, to, uh, uh, to really um, try to be as objective as I could about analyzing the style, if I'm going to have to make a stylistic argument. And so I, I did a few things. Number one, I took a couple of techniques uh, developed by Dr. Drought, who was my advisor on this thesis, which you may have been familiar with through uh, prior Signum talks, uh, the so-called lexomics techniques of dendrogram analysis and rolling window analysis. I'll talk a little bit more about how I use those in a moment. But on top of that, I layered um, a, uh, and I unfortunately have a cool name for it, but I, I layered an additional uh, uh, methodology that uh, looks at oral formulaic diction. So um, that same gentleman, Andy Orchard, who I quoted a minute ago, uh, developed a lot of data uh, looking at Andreas and the Kinnewolfian signed poems and Beowulf uh, and looking at distinctive oral formulaic language. So we know in oral formulaic cultures and poetries that they had a lot of uh, tropes and, and, and regular uh, things that they would use when they composed that helped the, the culture to compose in that, in that medium. Um, and uh, uh, Andy Orchard showed that although that that's a general, a general thing in that culture that took place, you could also identify certain kinds of formulas that were kind of authorial tips, as it were. So distinctive formula that a particular poet tended to use. And so he compiled lists of this information. And so I took that as a starting point for adding an additional layer to lexomics that looks at phraseology um, at the broadest uh, 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 resolution, if you will, 
and then added the additional, uh, the existing lexomic techniques to kind of zoom in and look at uh, with dendrogramming individual words and word frequency and how that affects the style. And then the rolling window, which is, uh, uses the individual symbols as a quantitative basis. And so the idea being, if all three of these techniques are seeing a composite work, then, um, then the feature is probably not a coincidence. That is a legitimate uh, feature of the text that we're seeing. So for the first prong of attack, the shared formulaic diction, I took uh, Andy Orchard's data and I did something that he, he didn't do. Um, I'm not quite sure why, but he didn't plot it um, by line number. So he did look at it and make the argument that yes, Andreas shares a lot of formulaic diction with the signed poems of Kinewolf. Okay, and he had that, that component of the argument, but he didn't look at whether or not it was uniformly distributed throughout the poem. And when I plotted it versus line number, as you see on this top graph, you can see that it is not uh, distributed uh, uniformly throughout the poem. And what you actually see are these gaps in that distinctive Kinewolfian formulaic language that I've marked here as one, two, three, four, um, which is unusual. Maybe it's something, maybe it's nothing. When you compare it to um, a poem that we know is a signed poem of Kinewolf, though, it does look anomalous. The second graph here is the same analysis but done with Elena, a signed poem. And you can see that the distribution of the formulaic language is, is fairly uniform throughout, uh, throughout the poem. Uh, so that, that initial uh, analysis sets the basis for a divide that I'm calling Andreas A and Andreas B. With Andreas A being the sections that show a high amount of Kinewolfian formulaic language and B being the sections that do not. The interesting thing about this is when you start looking at other, other ways to quantify that formulaic diction, um, and, and uh, Andy Orchard did this for four categories. He did uh, Kinewolfian formulaic language, uh, Kinewolfian word compounds, so you know just single words but that were com compounded in a, in a, a novel way for this author. Uh, and then the same thing with Beowulfian parallels, uh, formulaic language and Beowulfian compounds. Uh, the last one is the Andrean compounds. These are, these are compounds that just happen to be unique to this poem that appear nowhere else. And when you plot this information relative to line number, as I did with the Kenewolfian formula, the, the anomaly persists, okay? Um, there's a lot to take in on this slide, but the, the, the takeaway message is for each of these metrics, I've calculated what I call an occurrence per line score for that chunk. So the number of occurrences of the feature that we're looking at for this chunk. And what you find are the B sections tend to have a high uh, concentration of Beowulfian uh, uh, features and a low concentration of Kenewulfian features and the vice versa for the A sections. So this, this feature persists it's not just with the formulaic language but also with the way that the poet is using word compounds. The other interesting thing is that if you, when you do a close reading of this poem with this AB distinction in mind, what you find is that the B sections, the sections that don't have any Kinewolfian formulaic language, tells the entire plot that I just outlined to you. That uh, uh, Andreas is called by God, he takes a voyage, he goes and rescues Matthew, and, uh, uh, you know, and defeats evil. All of this is contained in only 570 lines of the poem, less than half of the lines of the poem. You can read just the B sections and have virtually the entire uh, story of Andrew's mission told to you, which is surprising. 
By contrast, if you look at the A sections and do a very close reading of those, what do we see? Well, we see discursive, what I'm calling homiletic sidebars. So these are extended passages where um, the narrative, not, not much goes on to move the plot forward, but the characters in the poem are um, expounding on some sort of Christian moral virtue or something of this effect. It really seems as if the A sections are expanding an existing poem in order to make more explicit a Christ Christian message. But maybe that's just an effect of the formulaic language, right? So let's look at some of our other techniques. Let's jump to the rolling window analysis. And that if I don't do any of these techniques justice, hit me up in the questions and I'll try to make a, a better explanation of what's going on here. Um, what I'm doing with this, this technique, this is one that was developed by, by Dr. Drought at Wheaton College, is looking at the ratio of thorn symbols to S symbols. And in Old English, uh, this, these two symbols effectively are interchangeable. Um, but uh, they, they both essentially have the same use as the TH in, in modern English. And uh, so different uh, scribes and different sources tend to use these letters slightly differently. And you can pick up on the differences, particularly um, when, um, and Dr. Drupp demonstrated this in his, in his uh, papers on this, on this technique, when applied to some of those early poems I mentioned that had uh, known composite uh, authorship, that you can find, you can pinpoint areas where the source changes because the ratio changes for whatever reason. The scribe copying it changes source, and now he tends to copy with the same ratio as the thing that he's, that he's looking at as he's writing. Um, so these sorts of orthographic tendencies can show up in composite works. And when we plot this ratio, where we're just calculating the number of thorns, the number of Fs in a particular section of the poem, and just we go through the poem doing that, and you can plot this, this ratio over, over line number, we see that those B uh, sections that, I, that uh, the oral formulaic language suggested existed, and were diff a different source, are confirmed by the rolling window analysis. You see that at the, uh, during, during each B section, it tends, the, the ratio tends to go downward. That's indicating that a, a lower number of thorns exist in that passage and a higher number of Fs. Conversely, when those sections end, the ratio tends to reverse. You see it's very striking at the end of B1, you have a, a, a sharp reduction up. At the bottom of B, you know, B2, the ratio is really bottomed out. And what's interesting is when you look at this poem, or when you look at this metric with the entire manuscript, that is an incredibly low uh, 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 nadir of this ratio when you look at the entire manuscript. But even here, it's a striking feature that at the bottom of B2, at the B2, the ratio is really bottomed out. And as soon as that B, B2 section ends, you see a, the ratio coming back up. And the same, same at B3. So there seems to be a confirmation with this technique um, for the same divisions that we saw in the oral formulaic language. The other thing that this technique uh, suggests is that in, old, in orth, old English orthography, the F symbol came uh, from the Celtic, uh, Celtic tradition, whereas the foreign symbol came from the Germanic tradition. And uh, the uh, F symbol came, entered the orthography earlier. So it, by that logic, uh, sections or poems that have a higher concentration of F you might expect to be older. And in this case, each of the, the B sections where the, you're having a downtrending ratio is telling us there's uh, a relatively more Fs than thorns 
i.e., these passages might be older. So that that's looking at the technique at the very high level and the very uh, the very zoomed-in level of orthography. But what about that middle layer? So here's where where dendrogram analysis comes in. This is maybe the hardest one to explain. So I'll take a moment to try to try to explain it. So what's going on with with dendrogram analysis is we take a, a poem and we cut it up into chunks, okay? And for each of those chunks, we wanna generate a stylistic profile for the poet um, based on the frequency that he uses each word, right? If there are five ands in this, in this piece and six ands in this piece, they have a difference of one and, okay? One occurrence of and. Now we do that with every single word and we can calculate a distance, basically, in between two chunks of text based on how uh, how they're using the words that they use differently, if that makes sense, okay? So that's, that's how we generate a profile, and what the dendrogram does is just organize that information in such a way, by comparing every piece, we can see what pieces are most similar and what pieces are least similar. And we can make a tree diagram. This is essentially the same kind of algorithms they do for genetics, right, to see how two pieces of genome are similar or different. And we can, we can uh, create this, this, this tree structure that helps us see uh, visually how these pieces uh, interact. And so what I did uh, is take that, those A and B components, those Andreas A and Andreas B chunks, and generate a cluster analysis, a dendrogram of, of those pieces to see, do these pieces um, uh, uh, have a style within themselves. Do the A pieces like the A pieces and don't like the Bs and vice versa? And what we see is indeed that is the case. The, uh, the Andreas A sections tend to cluster with themselves, as you can see in the graph here, and the B sections tend to cluster with themselves. Now, what's interesting, and I, I blew by this a little bit on the earlier charts, is that there is one section um, of A, of the Andreas A, that does have a lot of Beowulf stuff. Why don't I jump back and show you really quickly. Here, this first A piece, you can see with the Beowulfian formula and the Beowulfian compounds, um, in that first piece has a high green. Um, that happens to be the sea voyage um, when Andreas is uh, sailing to Myrmidon in order to save Matthew. The very piece that is the most iconically Beowulfian um, there's a little bit extra of Beowulf in that A, and I can't go into much detail about that, but I do surmise in my paper that there's an extra piece of Andreas B that's just been heavily edited and kind of stuck in that bit because of that sea voyage uh, piece. He's, uh, he's edited a little bit more. So when we come to the cluster analysis, we see that that, that special sea voyage piece is also called out in its own bit, which I've just lab labeled Beowulf in purple on the far side. Now one thing, this, this might be a little bit misleading in the sense that the way that dendrograms work, um, you can think of them kind of as like a mobile, if you've ever made a mobile or art, art class or had, had one for, for a baby, they, you can imagine them spinning, right? So although the B section is far to the left and the Beowulf section is far to the right in this particular dendrogram, if you spin it in your mind, uh, it might help you realize that they're act what this dendrogram is saying is that they're actually more similar than A. There's some, there's some the, Be the Beowulf piece that I've marked here and the B piece are more similar to each other than they are to Andreas. 
The other thing that we can use cluster analysis for is, so up to this point, I've just been comparing Andreas with itself. One handy thing that you can do with this technique is you can also compare it to other uh, pieces of text. And so what I've done is I've, also, I've taken the, the Kinewolfian corpus, so all of those signed poems by Kinewolf, as well as a few that we know or suspect are not written by Kinewolf, and I've made a large dendrogram of all of those things and how they relate. And then I've taken each one of those pieces, the Andreas A and Andreas B, and I've inserted them into that dendrogram to see how, how do these pieces seem to relate to Kinewolf? Are they similar or are they not similar? And what we see when we do that is that Andreas A clusters really heavily right into the heart of the most Kinewolfian of Kinewolf parts of the signed poems, right? It sits right in the middle there with most of Elena. That poem that I showed you is the longest one that he, that Kinewolf signed, um, and in, that's in the same manuscript. It, it clusters right into the center there. Whereas Andreas B, the pieces that don't share the formulaic language, that look older when we look at the orthography, and, um, and that we know have high Beowulfian formulaic language, does not cluster quite as well. Now it's still sitting in there, um, and I'll give you a speculation of why I think that's still sitting in the Kinewolf section, um, but it, uh, uh, it's definitely less Kinewolfian. It's not quite in the heart of that Kinewolfian stuff. And a matter of fact, the pieces that it that it uh, clusters with over there that are Kinewolfian um, are kind of anomalous pieces for various reasons. So conclusions, what does all of this tell us? So each piece of data that I've that I've shown you uh, is congruent with the fact, with this with the supposition that Andreas is a composite work. It, it seems fairly evident that this A and B distinction is not anomalous, that there's something here. We're seeing it in multiple techniques. Um, it accords with a close reading um, of the text as well. And uh, given that consequence, what might we infer from the, his for the history of the poem? And I, I give you this, the following uh, scenario. That there was a poem, something like Andreas B, let's call it Andreas B, that existed uh, prior to Kinewolf. Okay? This poem was concerned a lot more with telling a heroic tale of the exploits and adventures of Andreas than it was in sermonizing about Christian doctrine. Uh, this, when you look at Andreas B by itself, it lacks certain details that we see in that Latin manuscript I mentioned way back in the, in the beginning. Um, thus, it might the the author of whoever wrote Andreas B may not have known those Latin that Latin text. Uh, since otherwise, why didn't he use those features, right? Now, given that, someone, either Kinewolf or probably some, a follower who knew his work, one of the two, expanded that Andreas A poem with the material that I'm calling, I'm sorry, expanded Andreas B with the material that I'm calling Andreas A, um, which adds the moralizing episodes. Uh, in Atatio Christi, where Andreas is um, going through three days of tribulation like Jesus did. Things of this sort. Um, adding explicit Christian doctrine in places that seem ambiguous about such things. And given that the stuff in Andreas A clearly does share features with the Latin manuscript, one possible motivation for doing such a thing might have been to harmonize a known poem with a Latin source that the, the poet of what we now call Andreas was, was familiar with. 
And then, and then finally, uh, what I hope to take, the, if there's one thing for, for the audience to take away from this talk, I would hope it would be this last point, which is I think uh, coming from a computer science background, I think quantitative approaches can really augment traditional critical techniques in the humanities. Um, in particular, I would invite you to, to consider my, um, my, chart, my charting, my plotting of Andy Orchard's data and that when you do that, it shows that there's something that needs to be explained. Um, I think the quantitative approaches and techniques uh, offer all of us an opportunity to see things in perhaps a new way that doesn't need to be combative to the humanities, but additive. And with that, I think I hope I have a few moments for questions. I would be interested in putting these two talks in dialogue, because how do you understand the composite work, like I'll say, uh, with them in this little tiny work? Okay. Thoughts from either? I would, I would say that Andreas, the, uh, the second author, Andreas, thank you. Uh, it looks like there's an expansion, uh, yeah. a retroactive expansion, which is not a retcon because it doesn't sound like the second author um, reinterpreted the material, but inserted expanded expansions that kept everything as is. So not retcons, but uh, retroactive expansions. Yeah, I would say that's that's a fair assessment. There's one piece that maybe um, that maybe w would be a retcon that I, I didn't have a chance to talk about, which is on the sea voyage. Um, the Latin manuscript actually has the the boatman, the person who's piloting the boat, is Jesus in disguise. Now, it appears, as far as best as I can reconstruct it, that in Andreas B, he was just a guy. That's a perfect retcon. Right? It's, a, it's an excellent retcon. Um, so, uh, but for the most part, you're right. It's pretty much inserted. Yeah. Anything else before we have lunch? Yeah. <laughs> um, are, you, are you familiar with uh, Q-sum charts? No, Q-sum. Uh, it's, it's called it's a, uh, the cumulative sum of the deviation. Oh, okay. Which might be something worthwhile. So if you go back to your, um, I think it's the rolling window analysis. Yep. Uh, one of the things that a QSUM chart is useful is seeing when, when you have a very noisy signal, yep. when something changes. Yep. So I'm familiar with it from an industrial engineering standpoint where we made a change to the machine and we wanted to see if the failure rate increased or decreased. Um, and so, the failure rate to do with the machine. The machine failing versus what it was testing failing. And so we made a change to the machine. We still had a very noisy failure signal because we were still doing some bad stuff. Yep. But and but the, but you can see it sort of discontinuity in this chart yep. when, when something changed. So that might be something worth looking up. Yeah, no, that sounds exciting. Yeah. Definitely well. It definitely sounds like it has affinities with with the rolling window technique. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you.